I've got rules for the future for you now, then. Unless it's okay. And then I go. Nice wee place you've got. It's alright. A bit different from Stormer. It's a bit different, for sure. Well, I'm not going to stand here too long, eh? What can you do now? I don't know. I mean, how, how have you ended up with Adams? And... I, don't, I don't be in touch with anybody. No. I mean, as you can see, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It was an extraordinary series of events. A high-ranking Sinn Féin official is outed as an informer in the employ of MI5 and the special branch of the PSNI. On the steps of Stormont, Dennis Donaldson admits his role as a spy within the Republican ranks. And then he disappears. Six months later, an intrepid journalist, Hugh Jordan, tracks him down to an isolated farmhouse in Glenties in Donegal, confirming that his whereabouts aren't such a well-kept secret. Weeks later, Donaldson is shot dead in the same cottage, but mystery still surrounds what happened and why he remained there after he was discovered. Today, I'm talking with Hugh Jordan about the case of Donaldson and a recent police ombudsman report which points the finger of blame at police and their failures to properly evaluate the threat to his life. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So how did you find Dennis Donaldson? Dennis Donaldson had appeared at a press conference uh, with Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness six months before we found him, which was in 2006. So towards the end of, uh, yeah, six months before that, he in 2005, he'd appeared at a press conference where he admitted that he had been an agent for MI5 and the special branch of the PSNI in Northern Ireland, and before that, the RUC. It sent shockwaves through the Republican movement. And uh, because Dennis was such a trusted figure, he was a confidant of Jerry Adams. He was known by everyone in the Republican movement. He had gone to the Middle East to meet terrorist leaders on behalf of the IRA. He had trained in a, in a camp in the Middle East with another IRA man from Belfast. He was a well-known figure and very, very trusted. He travelled all over the country. But by the time, by this time, he, he was a political figure and he was the Sinn Féin manager at Stormont. He was the fixer. He needed anything to do with uh, Sinn Féin, he could arrange it for you. He dealt with the press, he dealt with uh, administration, and he was the head of administration. So he was a very well-known figure, and suddenly he tells the world that he has been, uh, for a long, long time, as he said, a a moment that was vulnerable in his life. Uh, They caught him, and he agreed to be an agent. He was one for many years. So when he came out and admitted this, obviously there had been goings on behind the scenes that led to this. This wasn't just mm-hmm. he woke up one morning and no. decided to tell no. the world this. No. Um, 
I can presume he was caught. There was an allegation, there had been an allegation of a Sinn Féin spying. The PSN, at Stormont, the PSNI were investigating these allegations and in the course of, of the investigation, a policeman arrived at Donaldson's door and told him that they believed a newspaper was about to expose him as a, a double agent and he, he, he should take precautions. Mm. Now, that story never appeared, but Dennis then outed himself. He went, first of all, to Sinn Féin and his, his leaders, Jerry Adams, and then he was questioned by some unknown figures on three occasions where he did tape-recorded interviews that have never been uh, released to this day where he revealed the extent of his treachery towards Sinn Féin and the IRA. So he was, one way or another, he was frightened out of his, you know, his secret life, really. Mm-hmm. The um, That point in the story that the police said to him that he was about to be outed by <clears throat> the media, um, I don't know whether the general public would understand what would go into having the information to be able to out somebody as you know, a double agent like that, mm-hmm. you'd, need a hur- you'd need so much backup, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. It's not something that you would be just reporting on as part of the Daily Beat. No, no. This would probably be if you ever got to a stage, and you'd need a reason to, wouldn't you, of course? So mm-hmm. um, do you think, do you think there was truth that anybody was digging around about that? Or do you think that that was the police? Well, I've way? never come across, Nicola, any evidence. Mm. There are only certain people who would have written a story like that and I might have been one of them. Mm. Sunday Times might have been another. Sunday Tribune might have been another. Uh, But no one from any of these uh, media outlets have revealed that they were the ones working on a story. Mm. And there really is a finite amount of people that would be able to do that small group and the North is small. And I would imagine mm-hmm. you'd know if somebody was. Yes. Well, I made it, I did research into that yeah. very thing because I knew I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I knew the other people well enough to ask them. Mm. And, and none of them, and you're talking about a handful of people, mm-hmm. and none of them were uh, interested in it. And obviously, to report a story like that, if you did get that kind of information, you had the backup, you would be reporting something that would be very dangerous to an individual. Yes. So all that would have had to come into, you know, the process, the of, process. Of, of doing it and mm-hmm. etc. But that's maybe a bit of an aside. Ah. Um, so he came out and he said he was an informant. I'm sure that caused absolute total and utter shockwaves amongst the media and beyond. Did he go to ground immediately or did he hang around for a bit or what happened? Immediately. He disappeared that Mm. day, that night. No one saw him again. Sinn Féin didn't speak about it. It was gone. They didn't want to talk about it. So so where did he go? This is what everyone wanted to Mm. know. And it was in, in, in that time in 2006 where I started looking at it. And I had... I had been told about possibility of a place in, in Donegal, although they didn't know where. So I have, through my family and uh, my, my 
historical background for myself. I have good connections there. And I travelled to Donegal and I was in the wrong area. I was in Gidor, which is further north. And I asked people and they all knew who Donaldson was, but they were unaware of any connection to that area. So I had further connections down in the southern, more southern part of Donegal, and I travelled down through uh, Kincasla and uh, right, right down Dunlow and then uh, to Glenties. And I was sitting in Glenties Main Street uh, reading the Irish Times and I happened to glance up and I saw Dennis Donaldson cross the road and get into his car. It was a blue car. I couldn't believe my luck. So I started the engine, and I followed him at some distance, and I saw him turn left on the main street in Glenties to take the country road and the back road uh, from Glenties to Duchre. And uh, he was a good distance in front of me, and I had the registration number of the car, and I followed, and I saw him then take a, a sweep off this road. I let him go that way himself. I carried on, so I was out of his vision. And then I, after a few minutes, I came back round and took his left road that he had turned right on. And a short distance down there, maybe a mile at the very most, I saw this quite cottage in a little hollow, and his car was parked there. So I had the place. I knew the exact location. And then I came back the next day and we filmed him with uh, sort of uh, sneaky camera equipment and spoke to him. And uh, he came out. Was parked. I didn't want to alarm him in any way, so I parked about 50 yards away and I knew Dennis could would see me because there's nothing moved on that road until uh, a few minutes later a car sped down. But... Um, he came out to the door and closed it behind him and he was shabbily dressed. He had a pair of boots on him but hadn't even tied the shoelaces. And uh, I, I introduced myself to him and spoke to him for, for 14 minutes. Ooh. I told him who I was and he said, oh, I know who you are. And uh, we was basically asking him um, what the future lay for him now, now that he'd exposed himself as a spy. And he said he, all, all he wanted was peace and he wanted to remain, have a quiet life there in Donegal. He insisted that he had been uh, sacrificed uh, by the special branch. To, bizarrely, he claimed it was to save the skin of David Trimble over the, over the spy ring. But uh, I found that hard to figure out. But that's, mm, that's, that's what he claimed. That's what he said. Now, to take us back to then 2006 in Northern Ireland, and obviously we have peace as such, mm -hmm. but, I mean, it is still a very volatile place. I mean, it does mm -hmm. slightly remain that way to this day. There is a lot going on yeah, in the, yeah. you know, in the underworld yeah, as such. Yeah. But what dangers was Donaldson facing in the country having this massive big expose and then he goes to ground. Clearly his life is at risk. Well, the the word informer in Ireland has uh, connotations going back hundreds of years and it remained particularly so in, in the north 
and and linked totally to the Republican movement. Because when someone is tagged an informer, that doesn't just remain with them and their family. It, it, go, it goes on to their children and to their children's children. It remains almost forever until it goes out of of, of human remembrance. Mm. So he faced that and he faced a physical danger because there's 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 film footage where senior Republicans who today are senior politicians in Sinn Fein, they're on record as saying they know what the, the, the consequences are for being an informant. Mm. And uh, I, I think um, Martin McGuinness actually said that he, he, Dennis Donaldson, knew the consequences. Mm. And so he was in a real, real danger. Mm. Like, uh, not un, unlike the criminal underworld, if you give, you know, if you rat, as they call it, mm-hmm. uh, the same, there is only one punishment for that. Um those who do that within the structures of the law go on witness protection. Mm-hmm. And if they're in any way out, they would never be kept within their own country mm-hmm. or at all in the proximity of where Donaldson mm-hmm. was. But Donaldson was on his own, obviously. Um, and as an outsider looking in, it does look as if he was somewhat sacrificed by somebody along the way. He was doing what he was doing, um, the right or wrong of it. But when he was out, he was there on his own trying to survive. Yeah, well, I, I think possibly another member of his family might have been might have been there that day, uh, but but he obviously I didn't didn't need to speak to them. It was only him I needed to speak to. Uh, but it was a very isolated, lonely place. This uh, cottage was built probably around the time of the famine. Uh, it had no direct running water. Uh, they had some arrangement of a pipe coming in from a stream. Uh, there was no electricity and the cooking was uh, a gas uh, canister. Mm. So it was pretty basic living. And, uh, and but he, he told me he was happy enough there, you know. Mm. Uh, so and would he have had the wherewithal at that stage to have moved out of the country, to move abroad, to go further afield? Well, people will tell you, uh, I was talking to someone the other day who told me that every time uh, they met Dennis, he tapped a cigarette from them, which suggested that he didn't have any money mm. um, <laughs> to them anyway. Uh, so, I mean... The cottage, there was no money spent on the cottage, clearly. It was a, a, a DOS house, you know. There were, he, set, he slept in a sleeping bag, you know, right. and th- this type of thing. So uh, the car was a basic family car. He worked at Stormont. But of course, the Sinn Féin structure, you, you don't keep your own wages. The, the, the money you've paid to mm-hmm. Sinn Féin and they pay you. So he wouldn't have been on big money there. So his it's how much money did he receive from his payment, his unofficial payment mm. as a spy? Mm. I mm. don't know. Well, you'd like to think he received something for doing that, wouldn't I'm you? I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. But um, obviously we'll never get to the bottom of that. But the house itself had, could you find, I mean, obviously this was an encounter you had with him, but in, in, in the years that followed, was there a history there? Had he purchased it? Was it something that uh, was rented? No, it was it was owned by uh, I think him at one stage, but with the time he was there, I think it was owned by another family member. And before that, it had 
belonged to a woman who had been involved with the Republican movement, another branch of it, and that poor soul had a tragic end. She took her own life by walking into the tide in Donegal, and then it goes back into the mists of time. Okay. But it was... It was, it was linked to his family. Yes, it mm. was, and but it was barely livable. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I did revisit it after 10 years, and it was lying open. I, I walked through it. The, the last book he was reading was the, the, the Architecture of Ancient Rome. All of that would be against security advice, wouldn't it? I mean, that we know of nowadays, modern times, if you were in any way were under threat, you certainly wouldn't be advised to stay in a property that was linked to you previously, that no. was linked to your family. Um, you know, he was a very recognisable character mm-hmm. living in a rural area, which can often be... Um, People are more observant than yeah. they are in urban areas, etc., yeah. etc. Et but despite all of that, the day you landed on his doorstep, uh, you could have been someone very different and you could have had more than a pen with you. Mm-hmm. And that should have been a major warning to him, obviously. And it should have also been a major warning to the police of the threat. Mm-hmm. If you could find him, mm-hmm. others could too. Yes. And... You wrote up your report. I mean, that was a major scoop, a major exclusive. I remember it Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, You were very careful not to detail where this property was. Mm -hmm. The following day, Nicola, I did, uh, the following days, I did 67 interviews uh, in various media all over the world. Uh, And one of them, the next day was uh, Newsnight, BBC Newsnight, where I was interviewed. It was supposed to be Paxman, but it was Emily Maitlis. And Emily said to me, do you feel any guilt about this? And I said, no, I don't, because uh, and I said, the people who should feel guilty are the people who pulled the trigger. That's the people who mm. are to blame. And I said, but I was careful not to, I know you won't know the, the geography of Donegal. Donegal is the second largest county in Ireland. To travel from Malinhead in the north to Ballyshannon in the south will be two and a half hours driving. There are literally thousands of whitewashed cottages and I did not identify it more than to say it was in in West Donegal. Donegal. Mm. And you were aware that if you had done, you would have been given his address or whatever. We had a discussion about that before. What was his demeanour? When I saw him, Mm. he was nervous. He was nervous, exactly as you point out, if I could find him. And he did ask me, how did, how did you find me? Mm. Um, he, he, I noticed his eyelid flickered throughout. It was with him 14 minutes and his eyelid flickered the whole time through nerves. I, I took that to be. So he was nervous. It must have been going through his head exactly that. Yes. Yes. You know, and he mightn't have been too happy to see you. Yeah, he should have been because yeah, yeah. you could have been anyone else. And obviously, then was it ten days later? Yes, yes. But no, it, we have just over that. But the point is, um, see, his family took a complaint to the ombudsman, mm. which was published last week, and the ombudsman uh, upheld the, their complaint that the PSNI should have done more for him. And I I think that's possibly the case. But he was living in another jurisdiction as Mm. well. Well, They did inform him after. They did make contact with him after the Sunday World story. So just go back and and tell us that timeline then again. So you tracked him down. 
big exclusive. Yes. Here he was for the first time six months after this shocking announcement at Stormont. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the story ran in the Sunday World. Yes. That weekend. And presumably it was picked up everywhere. Yes. Yes. Uh, all over because he was such a significant figure and everyone knew him. And it was a big story in Ireland particularly. Mm. Um, and then it, it got bigger because uh, two and a half weeks later, he was shot dead at the same spot, yards from where he had a conversation with me. Mm. And did you hear that story on the news? or Yes, I was in, in Belfast uh, speaking to my colleague, Liam Clark, who's now dead, from the Sunday Times. And uh, the BBC rang me and asked, told me about it and asked me, would I come round to do an interview? So that's, that's how I heard about it. And what was your initial reaction? Were you surprised? Yes and no. Uh, I thought, genuinely thought, Dennis Donaldson would have moved. Mm. And, uh, you know, that seems uh, so obvious now. Yeah, that he should yeah, have. Yeah. Well, obviously, he should and have. I thought he should have moved and written a book. That's what I would have done in his position. <laughs> but um, but he didn't. He stayed there. I was I was surprised to hear that he had remained there. I was convinced he would have moved. As I, as I drove away from his place, I thought he'll be out That's of the there. end of him yeah, in that property. Yeah, yeah, That's exactly what yeah, I would have yeah, thought. Yeah. And he'd more than enough time to do that. To do that it wasn't yeah. as if this happened no. within 48 no, hours. No. Um, so what was the, um, I mean, that was an equally shocking moment as the revelations that he was a spy. Um, what were the initial thoughts on who had done this? Um, you know, was he in the house on his own when this happened? Mm-hmm. Was there evidence there had been anyone else there? You felt that day there was somebody in the house possibly with yes, him? Yes, yes. No, well, we, we we later learned he was on the house on his own without doubt. Um, that he, he was on the house on his own. Um, the finger of suspicion immediately went to the provisional IRA, the organisation of, of whom he had been, of which he had been a part. Uh, but they completely denied it, but their denial was short and n- no explanation. Just said we had no hand in this, uh, so that added further fuel to the fire that it was them. But it was uh, three years before there was a claim of responsibility, and that was from the real IRA, an offshoot of the provisional IRA. And their reasoning was that he was a, tra- a traitor. A traitor to the Republican to the movement, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So following his murder and um, obviously an investigation is launched, you, you've already said you had the problem with the two territories, the PSNI, uh-huh. and you had the Gardaí, and Donegal is maybe not that overly populated mm-hmm. uh, with either Gardaí or citizens, and they probably wouldn't be that accustomed to investigating murders. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened and where did well, the investigation go? The the the, the guardie contacted me, and they they said they were willing to come to Belfast to meet me. So I met them and had a long interview. But they they were Dublin detectives, mm. uh, and they they were seriously investigating Donaldson's murder, and they were very efficient and uh, knowledgeable of exactly who he was. Mm. Now, presumably there wasn't the likes of maybe CCTV up there at the time. Um, probably still isn't in, no, in a lot of the corners. that's right, yeah. Um, 
you know, you presumably followed this murder investigation. Did they have an idea that somebody had come in from across the border? What did they suspect? They, those detectives that met me at that time, but that was very soon after, believed that it was the provisional IRA. Yeah. They, they said that to me. But uh, turns out it was it was inaccurate, wrong. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. So m- moving on, then the uh, complaints were made to the police ombudsman in regards. Um, well, was the complaint made about you doing the story, or was the complaint made about the PSNI? Well, it was primarily about the PSNI. Yeah. But they also wanted a, a criminal investigation into. Uh, certain journalists, I take it I was one of them possibly, um, that the ombudsman rejected because there was no evidence to to mount a a criminal investigation. And there was an allegation made that uh, that the the police uh, had had leaked the whereabouts to certain journalists. I presume I was Mm -hmm. perhaps one of them. uh, Which was absolutely not the case. It was nonsense, yeah. And this was coming, these complaints were coming from the Donaldson family. Family, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it took a long time for the report to come. There was delays all over the place, as there often is with these things. And uh, there was a lengthy delay in the inquest, and still is. And, uh, but uh, the family eventually uh, went to the, the, the the police the police ombudsman in Northern Ireland mm. and made a, a a lengthy complaint that was investigated in depth and then they they actually asked the ombudsman to withhold some of her findings but she decided against that and revealed the whole thing last Friday yeah and the findings are pretty critical of the PSNI and their actions following yes. the exposure of where he was, yes, even though you yes. hadn't given the exact aye, detail. Aye. Um, it sort of pretty much states that they, you know, their duty, they failed in their duty of care to Donaldson as an individual. It does. Uh, yeah, that's the conclusion of mm, it, yeah. Mm. Although uh, there would be another argument that was incredibly difficult for them because it's a different jurisdiction, you know. I mean, you can't just run over the border armed to the teeth and say to someone, you should come with us, you know. the uh, And then how do you contact Donaldson in a place where mobile phones rarely work? It probably was done through Angarda Shikana. Mm-hmm. And I don't think relations were as good back then as they mm-hmm. are probably mm-hmm. now. They have been working on them over the years. But in the meantime, probably the most interesting um, thing that had happened was the inquest and some details that came out in the inquest which led you on a different trajectory as yeah, regards who yeah, is responsible yeah. for it. Well, well, this is right. Um, that After the real IRA claim, there was much speculation about who was capable of, of doing this. And a totally unrelated uh, thing happened in Scotland and that was uh, for a long time two well-known loyalists, i.e. Johnny Adair and Sam Skelly McCrory, leading figures in the UDA in Belfast, both of whom served long sentences in, in, in prison. Skelly did his full sentence. Johnny Adair was released under the Good Friday Agreement. And after a fallout within loyalism, uh, Johnny Adair was uh, exiled. First of all, went to Scot to England, and then to Scotland, where 
uh, Sam Skelly McCrory lived, and they remain there to this day. So they were totally oblivious to the fact that a small group of Republicans in Scotland were plotting to murder them. And they only found out when MI5 knocked their door and explained to them who they were and told them that that MI5 had carried out a 13-month-long investigation where a Donegal man called Anton Duffy was very far on with a murder blueprint to kill both of them. They were in the process of attempting to buy an AK-47. So it emerged at the court case that how, how they came to Duffy's attention. Duffy was in jail in Scotland and uh, for another matter completely. Also in jail was a loyalist, a member of the uh, LVF, the uh, Loyalist Volunteer Force. But Adair and Skelly had gone a number of times to visit him because they knew him from, from here. And uh, he was from Lisbon or, uh, initially, the man. He's now since been released. But Anton Duffy spoke to this loyalist in jail and befriended him. He did a drawing of his son from a photograph. He was a good artist. Mm-hmm. And Duffy uh, said to this loyalist, I see Johnny Adair and Skelly up visiting you. And he confirmed that it was them. And this plot started there. So he came up with a plan to kill Skelly and Adair, either going to the prison for a visit or coming away from it. And I don't know how MI5 got onto it, but they carried out counter-surveillance on everyone involved, and suddenly these arrests were made. So it was a serious... And he was jailed, Duffy was jailed, for 17 years. It's a long sentence. Mm. Murderers in Northern Ireland rarely get 17 years. But but he, he, he got that. Now, what happened then was at an, an inquest in Donegal, a member of Angarda Shikona told the inquest that the, the, the guardie had applied and successfully got a, a, a European arrest warrant and because the director of public prosecutions in the Republic had identified a suspect who would be charged with the murder of Dennis, Dennis Donaldson in Donegal in 2006. But the, the individual who was served with the European arrest warrant was in custody in Scotland on another matter, and this was Anton Duffy, uh, who will, when, when, when he's finished his time in Scotland, will be made amenable for, in Letterkenny for the murder of Dennis Donaldson. When you started that story about Duffy, I wondered what was so special about him that a Republican movement in Scotland would have brought him over in order to carry out an assassination of mm. two very well-known mm. loyalists. I mean, very well-known is an understatement. But clearly, he was the opportunist. He was already there. He was yes. already in prison for a matter. And he wasn't brought from Donegal at all. No. His connection with Donegal and being there at the time of the Donaldson murder, um, is it suspected that if he is, if he is indeed tried in relation to that, he's currently a suspect, is it suspected that he may have been linked to that in an also in an opportunistic fashion or that he was 
Well, that's what I believe. The, mm. the links between Donegal and S Scotland, Glasgow in particular, are well known and and huge. And he would know all of that. He would he would know people travel by bus every day from where he's from to Glasgow. There are four buses a day going to Glasgow from from where he came from. Mm. So, uh, but it brings us back, though, one way or another, to it being a Republican plot to kill Donaldson. Uh -huh. Did the real IRA ever, you know, say actually we didn't do that? Did the provost ever come forward and say we were involved? Like it, it it's sort of murky, isn't it? What exactly yeah, happened? Well, the provisional IRA uh, were emphatic from the beginning that it wasn't there. Mm. Few people believed them mm. uh, because of past things like that, but. Um, and so it went into abeyance, uh, the case, until three years later, this claim out of the blue from the provisional IRA and uh, from the real IRA. And, uh, and that's the, uh, gradually people have come to see that this is at some stage along the way, whether it's a lone wolf initially, uh, Duffy has become connected to the real IRA. Would there have been a bounty on Donaldson's head, do you think? I don't think so. I don't really think so. It was a matter of honour? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it could have been, if it was yeah. opportunistic, somebody yeah. could have made their name yeah. in Republican yes. circles. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole uh, murky world of informers is, is quite incredible. Uh, and as the years went on in Northern Ireland, there's a terror war became the long war, uh, the, the amount of informers became huge and so much so that the, I think the provisional IRA came to the decision that they couldn't keep killing them because they'd be killing people every week. Mm. Donaldson's got an interesting background in himself and I think you pointed out in an article in the Sunday World about how his career, his Republican career, started with a lie and there it continued. It's the most remarkable of all lies is uh, w within months of the provisional IRA being founded in December 1969. So in June 1970, Donaldson was part of a, an amazing lie. And that was uh, there had been an incident in the 26th of June. Uh, three Protestants had been shot and dead in North Belfast by the provisional IRA, the newly formed provisional IRA. And the loyalists were, were baiting for reprisal. And the, the vulnerable spot was the small nationalist community in East Belfast, totally surrounded by loyalist areas, Short Strand. It's a Catholic church on the Newton Arch Road, one of the arterial routes into the city. And uh, it was very, very vulnerable. There was logistical problems for the police and the army. They couldn't get in there for, for several hours. So you had this spot of vulnerability. And they, the, the, the pit, what started off as stones and bricks and bottles turned to petrol bombs and then bullets. So the, the, the small IRA in the area were led by an IRA veteran called Billy McKee, who came from another area, came from the falls, but he brought with him some weaponry, including a Thompson submachine gun. 
and he was Donaldson, whose father had been interned alongside McKee many years before in the 1940s. Donaldson agreed to help, but he was a slight, slightly built figure to the point of being frail. Mm. McKee handed him a Thompson submachine gun, a notoriously inaccurate weapon, but it made a lot of noise, which was probably its best value. So Donaldson starts returning fire with this, and it's clear he has difficult, eyewitnesses said he had terrible difficulty controlling the thing. So it goes on, and a number of Protestants were shot dead. They're also assisted by a man called Henry McElhone, a local man who was a window cleaner, had been a rigger, and uh, he, father of six children, six boys, he came out to support and defend his community and his family. So he was placed up a tree, and just as things are coming to an end, McKee gives the order to stop firing, and Donaldson fires a last burst of machine gun fire. He hits um, McKee five times in the back, and he hits Henry McElhone in the in the throat. He's shot dead, and uh, and and McKee is is um, is is badly wounded. But he's lifted from the scene and taken to a hospital. And there's pictures of that. So the next day, the image of an IRA leader being carried from the grounds of a Catholic church did wonders for the IRA recruiting in Belfast. They were queuing up to join the provisional IRA, and they did. And uh, the, the, the IRA put out this image that they had been shot by loyalists. But in truth, they'd been shot by Dennis Donaldson. And he was protected by a lie because that narrative could not get out. No, that's that's right. An own goal, which is a crass way of saying it. Subsequently, Nicola, I spoke to Henry McElhone's widow and she carried on and she eventually remarried and brought up her family. But she told me she was told a pack of lies. She even met McKee, who's since dead. He lived on till he was 90. Uh, but uh, he never put her wise to the real truth and she only found it out when the case was being looked at in the historic inquiries team where the detectives were able to tell her the real truth. She was shocked, but she told me, she's now 85 today, she told me she is glad that she eventually found out the real truth and Dennis Dawson was part of it. What I would say is that was Dennis's first big lie, mm. but there were many, many more to come. And that lie launched him as a hero. Um, you know, this frail individual you, you describe and you can see him in the video when you're, you've doorstepped him. He is teeny tiny, obviously, yeah. but he's launched as this hero, as this Republican figure, which he obviously, you know, you, the, the, you battle, the battle of St. Matthews, as it became known mm. in Republican folklore, uh, was a, a defining moment in the history of the Provisional IRA. This was what launched them as a fighting force. And without doubt, the uh, young Catholic youths were queuing up to join mm. the Provisional IRA. It was the fashionable thing to be in. And so when he goes on and he becomes so significant in later life in Sinn Féin, etc., um, have you any idea why or how he started to go to the other side and start informing? Is there any indication of that? 
No one knows. There, there's mm. been various speculation. It may well have been this moment. It may well have been the St. Matthew's gun battle uh, because he would have been charged uh, with uh, with um, murder mm. uh, or certainly manslaughter of, of Henry McAloon and he would have charged with wounding Billy McKee. It may well have been that moment. No one knows. Or could it have been the threat of his exposure as a fraud, you know, at that very significant time? Would, I mean, the historical inquiries team obviously got to the bottom of what happened that day. Presumably MI5 could have at some point before approaching him. Yes, it's all possibilities. I would say mm. it's, it's more likely to have been a bigger leverage would have been on the first thing, which was uh, mm. you could have been charged and, and served a life life sentence. And maybe he got used to whispering in the shadows to the enemy and... Comes with the territory of uh, Republican conspiracy. Mm. Uh, there's a thing in Belfast they talk about the Leeson Street nod. Leeson Street's off the Falls Road, heartland of Republicanism and uh, the, the, there's nods and winks everywhere and whispered uh, tones about what's going on, you know. So he would have understood all of that. And a little bit like in the criminal underworld, because they are quite similar, but at the heart of it is money. Yes. Um, I just want to watch this video with you. Nice sweet place you've got. It's right. A bit different from Stormont. That's a bit different, but sure. You're doing all the work yourself? Doing a bit. Oh, Jesus. What's the card? I'll get one that you want here. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think now when you're looking at that? I mean, it is an incredible piece of journalism. Uh, the truth is, I take it in my stride. Mm. Uh, I was aware at the, at the moment that I was talking to him, I'm looking back there, 16 years, uh, I was aware that it was a big story. Uh, I, I, I wish he had spoken more. Mm. Uh, it was like drawing teeth, trying to have a conversation with him. But I wish he had looked after himself better. Mm. As I drove away, walked away from him seconds after that finished, uh, I was sure he would have not been too long behind me. And I mean hours behind me. He could have gone in and he could have packed his bag Aye. and he could have left that yeah. house that day and never returned yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. It is. It's a. It's a tragic loss of life because, as I've pointed out before, when he joined, you know, he joined the IRA in the Ormo Park in a nice part of Belfast in 1966, the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising. He joined it probably for the best of reasons, thinking that he was part of a left-wing conspiracy that was going to benefit Ireland. And he ended up in a murky world of lies and deceit and subterfuge that ended in his tragic death. Hugh Jordan, thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.